Chapter 8. How to Maintain and Grow Your System You've done the hard work. What's next? Here's how to maintain and grow your financial infrastructure to achieve your rich life. You might notice that this is one of the shortest chapters in the book. That's because you've already put the 85% solution into place and you've dealt with the most important parts of your finances, your credit cards, bank accounts, spending, and investments. You've consciously decided what your rich life is and you've built a financial system that is essentially on autopilot, letting you spend time pursuing the things you love. You are doing great, especially considering that most people are still struggling with paying their monthly bills. So congratulations. But, of course there's a but. If you're seriously nerdy and you want to know more about enhancing your finances, then this chapter is for you. We'll cover a few topics that'll help you maintain your system. We'll also cover optimizing your investments even further. Remember though, this is extra credit, so don't feel the need to follow the advice in this chapter unless you really want to. Get honest about why you want more. I was raised to be the best, to study harder, work longer, and perform better than everyone else. In many ways, those lessons have paid off. But I now also see the dark side of blindly following the idea of being the best without reflecting on why you're working so hard. So before you read on, ask yourself what the point of all this work is. Is it to earn an extra $10,000 or to actually live a rich life? Sometimes financial advice just blindly encourages people to do more, more, more without stopping to ask, is this enough? The concept of winning becomes the goal instead of knowing why you're playing in the first place. When do you get to stop and enjoy all the hard work you've done? I've seen too many people decide to take control of their finances, which is good, then change their lives to save money, also good, then continue saving and become increasingly aggressive, not so good, and finally end up living in the spreadsheet, where they spend each day counting how much their money has grown very bad. They've become obsessed with the game without realizing why they're playing. You do not want to live in the spreadsheet. Life is more than tweaking your asset allocation and running Monte Carlo simulations on your investments. At this level, you've already won the introductory game. Now it's time to ask why you want to keep going. If the answer is, hey, I want to take a lavish vacation every year and splurge on first-class tickets, great! If your answer is, I'm saving aggressively for the next three years so we can afford to move to our dream neighborhood, awesome. I can show you how to achieve both those goals even faster. To do that, let's go through an exercise I call taking it from the clouds to the street. When I ask you, why do you want more? The common answers are words like freedom and security. Now those are fine, but I want to challenge you to go deeper. The problem is that with those high-level, vague visions, they don't really motivate us as much as we'd hope. True motivation is often real, concrete. It's on the street. It's something that affects us day to day. If you had to get extremely specific about why you want to earn your next $10,000, and I challenged you to bring your answer from the clouds to the street, what would you say? What's your street-level motivation? Sure, you could create some lofty life purpose, or you could take a 10-minute walk and figure out what gets you excited at this exact moment. 
the answers are often a lot simpler than you think. Your motivation could be taking a taxi to happy hour at 5 p.m. instead of sweating on the train. That's what mine used to be. Or it could be paying for a friend to join you on a glamping trip. One of my early street-level motivations was being able to order appetizers when I ate out. For this book, my street-level motivation is to answer the same questions I get asked about every single day when it comes to money and to tell a few hilarious jokes. That's it. It's as simple as that. So, here's my question to you. Why do you want to earn the next $1,000 or $10,000 or $25,000? Don't give me an answer that's in the clouds. Get brutally honest and bring your answer down to the street. Daniel Snow, who's 38 years old, wrote, Two of my favorite things are concerts and coaching high school lacrosse. Thanks to my job and salary, I'm able to buy VIP tickets to concerts and have scheduling flexibility to hold a full-time job in addition to coaching high school lacrosse. And Els Jones, who's 44 years old, wrote, When I go grocery shopping, I don't look at the prices of things. I get whatever I need and whatever I want. Before, I needed to figure out how to make $50 work for the week. Now, if a recipe calls for a pound of Gruyere, I'll get it. I might be surprised at the register, but it's all good. I don't need to take anything back. Now, if you've gotten clear about why you want more, let me show you a few things you can do to achieve it. How to accumulate more and grow faster. Feed your system. In the previous chapter, you chose your investments and set things up so they run automatically. The automatic system is great, but it's fueled by only one thing, the money you feed it. That means that your system is only as strong as the amount you put in it. The earlier chapters in this book were about implementing the 85% solution. Remember, getting started was the hardest and most important step. It didn't matter if you were only contributing 100 bucks a month. Well, now it's about the raw volume you put into your system. More in, more out. This is where your purpose comes in handy. For example, if you want to fire, remember, financially independent, retire early, if you want to fire in 15 years, then you know to double down and save and invest aggressively. Alternatively, if you want to live large in Manhattan, you could give yourself a generous spending plan for cocktail bars and seamless delivery. That's a decision I know well. Of course, the very best is to say yes and yes. Yes, I want to save aggressively. And yes, I want to live an incredibly rich life. With enough planning, and depending on your goals, a high enough income, you can often do both. Remember, because the rewards of investing as early as possible are so tremendous, one of your key drivers will be feeding as much as possible into your system. To put it another way, if you found a magical money machine that took in a dollar and spit out five, what would you do? Well, it's obvious. You'd put as much as you possibly could in it. The only catch is that it takes time. Every dollar you invest today will be worth many more tomorrow. Alyssa McQuestion, 34 years old, wrote, I automated my savings so that I was saving a substantial amount while paying off credit card debt. This allowed me to pay for a wedding and also buy a house at the bottom of the market in San Diego. My home increased in value from $250,000 to $700,000. And the absurdly low mortgage payment allows us to live relatively stress-free in a popular, beautiful area. How rich will I be? 
Well, let's talk about how much your monthly investment will be worth over time, assuming an 8% return. The point of this is to show you that now we are focusing on the volume. More in, more out. So let's take a look. If you're investing $100 a month, after five years, you'll have just over $7,000. After 25 years, you'll have over $95,000. What happens if we move that number up to $500 a month? Well, after five years, instead of $7,000, you'll have over $36,000. And instead of $95,000, when you invest $100 a month, when you invest $500 a month, you'll have over $475,000 after 25 years. I want to give you just one final example. Let's say that you get aggressive and you decide to invest $1,000 a month. Again, 8% returns. After five years, you'll have over $73,000. And after 25 years, over $951,000. Don't just take it from me, though. Go to bankrate.com and open up one of their investment calculators. Type in your monthly investment contribution and assume an 8% return. You'll likely see that your current contributions will grow slower than you thought. But add a little bit per month. Just play around with the numbers. Add $100 a month more. Even add $50 a month more. And watch those numbers change dramatically. Be sure to go to the end, 30 or 40 years from now, and see how much of your growth happens in those later years. That will tell you that starting now and contributing aggressively is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. In Chapter 4, I outlined the Conscious Spending Plan that suggested general percentages of income to allocate for savings and investing. Now remember back then, your first goal was to aim for those percentages. Now it's time to move beyond those amounts so you can save and invest as much as possible. I know, I know. Invest more? Hard to squeeze out another cent. This is not me wanting to deprive you. Actually, quite the opposite. Because compounding works so effectively, the more you save now, the more you'll have later. And I'm talking about a huge amount. You saw this in the bank rate calculator. Now go play with your conscious spending plan. See how much you can eke out. Can you save an extra 50 bucks a month? 100 bucks? Maybe more? See if you can do that every single month to put towards your investments. Optimizing your plan might involve doing some serious bargaining, like when you make a major purchase, such as a car or a house. I'll cover that in the next chapter. Or you might need to cut your expenses as ruthlessly as possible, which I cover on my website. Just search for Ramit Sethi Savings. You may even think about negotiating a higher salary or getting a higher paying job. No matter how you go about it, be sure that you are shoveling the maximum amount possible into your system every month. Remember, it's never easier to do this than now. And the more you feed into your system today, the sooner you will reach your goals. Michael Steele, who's 40 years old, wrote, I went from manually paying my bills every month to automatically paying my bills, automating savings, and planning the whole year's worth of expenses. Now I've even automated monthly donations to charity as well. I almost never worry about money, and after growing up with the constant struggle of money being short, this really makes me feel a lot better. Rebalancing your investments. If you've chosen to manage your own asset allocation, you're going to have to rebalance from time to time, which is one reason that I highly recommend target date funds, which handle this for you. Now, if you've chosen a target date fund, good news, you can skip this section. 
But if you haven't, here's what you need to know about rebalancing. When you have a diversified portfolio, some of your investments, such as international stocks, will outperform others. To keep your asset allocation on track, you want to rebalance once a year so your international stocks don't become a larger part of your portfolio than you intended. Think of your investment portfolio like your backyard. If you want your zucchini to be only 15% of your backyard and they grow like crazy and end up taking 30%, well, you're going to want to rebalance. And you can do that by either cutting zucchini back or by getting a bigger yard so that zucchini is back to covering only 15%. I know, I know. First personal finance, next organic gardening. You got a true renaissance man on your hands here. All right, let's say you create an asset allocation based on the Swenson model. Recall that in the Swenson model, 30% for domestic equities, 15% for developed world international equities, 20% for REITs, 15% for government bonds, 15% for tips, and 5% for emerging market equities. Now let's assume for a minute that domestic equities gain 50% one year. And just to keep the math easy, let's hold all other investments constant. All of a sudden, domestic equities represent a larger part of your portfolio and all the other numbers are out of whack. You're going to see that after domestic equities jump 50%, in your overall portfolio, domestic equities now represent 45%. Tips are 12%, government bonds are 12%, REITs are 16%, emerging market equities are 4%, and developed world international equities are 12%. Basically, everything's out of whack. Although it's great that one of your investment areas is performing well, you still want to keep your allocation in check so one sector isn't disproportionately larger or smaller than others. Rebalancing your portfolio will make sure your assets remain properly allocated and protect you from being vulnerable to a specific sector's ups and downs. The best way to rebalance is to plow more money into the other areas until your asset allocation is back on track. How? Well, assuming your domestic equities now represent 45% of your asset allocation, but according to your plan, they should only be 30%, here's what you do. Stop sending money there temporarily and redistribute that 30% of your investment contribution evenly over the rest of your investment categories. You can do this by pausing your automatic investment to particular funds from within your investment account. Just log into your account, find the fund that's out of whack, and stop the automatic contributions. You can resume that at any time. In other words, stop investing in the outperforming area and grow the other parts of your portfolio until your allocation is back in line with your goals. Now, there is another way to rebalance, but I don't really like doing it. You can rebalance by selling the outperforming equities and plowing the money into other areas to bring the allocation back under control. I gotta tell you, I hate selling because it involves trading fees, paperwork, and thinking, so I don't recommend it. Don't forget to set a calendar reminder to resume your automatic payments for the asset class you paused once the portfolio is rebalanced. Now let's talk about another example, this time when one of your funds has lost money. That's also going to knock your asset allocation out of whack. In this case, you can pause the other funds and add money to the loser until it returns to where it should be in your portfolio. To keep the math simple, I recommend the free financial dashboard at Personal Capital to help guide your rebalancing. And remember one thing, if you've invested in a target date fund, this will all automatically be taken care of. Yet another reason I like them. Stop worrying about taxes. Taxes are tribal. 
They're one of the most politically heated topics of all. And when it comes to taxes, I've learned that people really, really don't like being told that what they've believed for 25 plus years is wrong. So when I share six thoughts about taxes, some of you are probably going to get mad at me. (laughs) That's fine with me. Here's what I want. I want you to be educated about taxes. And then I want you to notice how many people unthinkingly repeat tropes and cliches when it comes to taxes. Tax truth number one. People think getting a tax refund is bad. In reality, it's great. Here's the myth. Getting a tax refund is bad because you've given Uncle Sam an interest-free loan for a whole year. The reality is, you would have spent that money. We know this because we have data, and that data shows us that small tax refunds that are gradually added to your paycheck get spent. Frankly, most Americans spend almost every last dollar they get. However, guess what happens to big tax refunds? Those tend to get saved or used to pay off debt. Surprising fact, this is why politicians have a hard choice to make when it comes to tax cuts. Give people small tax refunds over the year and they'll spend it, which stimulates the economy, but they won't realize they're getting more tax money and therefore they won't give the politicians credit. Or the politicians can give them a big tax refund and your administration will get good press, but guess what people will do? They'll save it or pay off debt, which means they won't stimulate the economy. Tax truth number two, the U.S. is not the highest taxed nation in the world. The myth, America is the highest taxed nation in the world. Reality, not even close. Surprise, notice how many basic facts like this are simply lied about. If we can't even agree on basic facts, how can we expect to agree on tax policy? Also, if you're a tax nut opening up your email and typing 30 pages of crackpot theories and YouTube videos, Don't bother. I'm right. Tax truth number three. People actually think it's better not to make more money for tax reasons. They are wrong. The myth. Making more money will move you up in tax brackets, causing you to get taxed more and actually earn less. Reality. Please, for the love of God, spend three minutes learning about something called marginal tax brackets. If you start earning more and you move up tax brackets, the marginal amount or the money in the higher tax bracket is taxed at a higher rate, not the entire amount you earn. I can't even believe this is even something I have to say. As Christy, a commenter on my website, wrote, I've known people who refused raises for years because they think the new tax bracket will lower their income. If you try to explain reality to them, they become furious. They are so convinced they would rather complain about it than learn how it works. At this point, if they learned they were wrong all this time, they would feel so foolish that they would rather go on believing incorrect things than learn they were wrong. I know someone who believes that he has to pay his 3000 deductible up front every single time he goes to see a doctor. He becomes irate and refuses to listen if you try to explain how deductibles work. He'd rather just complain about his health and not go to a doctor because each trip would cost $3,000 so he can't afford it. He tells everyone about Obamacare ruining his life. I think he just enjoys complaining. Surprise, the people who believe this will go their entire lives without spending five minutes learning how tax rates actually work. At a certain point, their incorrect opinions become so entrenched 
that it's impossible for them to admit they were wrong and accept the truth. Good times. Tax truth number four. People get really angry about how their taxes are spent, but they actually have no goddamn idea where the money goes. The myth. We spend a ton of money on foreign aid. Reality. Out of every $100 in federal taxes you pay, around 1% goes towards foreign aid, which is way lower than most people think. Surprise, people are clueless about where their tax dollars are spent. They also love to say, uh, I don't mind paying taxes as long as it doesn't go towards XYZ. Thanks, but that's not how taxes work in a democracy. Tax truth number five. People think rich people just use loopholes to never pay taxes. The myth, there are a lot of loopholes for the rich. Reality, I know about these loopholes. There are a few legit ones, like tax efficiency in your investment accounts, maxing out your tax-advantaged accounts, and a few more, but not nearly as many as you might think. In general, those loopholes are few and far between and largely available to the super-rich who earn millions via capital gains, not ordinary salaries or even high salaries of people like lawyers and bankers. Surprise! There are certain loopholes for the super-rich that you probably haven't heard about, if you earn multiple six figures, go to my website for my course on advanced personal finance. Tax truth number six, your politics cloud your rational judgment on taxes. The myth, people think their beliefs about taxes are rational and fair. Yes, even you. Reality, your personal psychology, along with your sources of information, play a huge role in what you believe about taxes. As Psychology Today noted, People have a number of general beliefs about what kind of exchanges should be taxable, and they want tax law to fit with those beliefs. When tax law conflicts with those beliefs, then people think the tax is unfair. Now here's an idea for you. Next time you hear someone ranting and raving about taxes, ask them this. It sounds like you don't like taxes. Out of curiosity, what do you think your taxes get you? Now this does two things. Number one, it shifts the conversation away from the scarcity-based pandemic of people who see taxes as taking something away from them to seeing them as the price you pay as part of a democracy. And number two, you will quickly determine whether this person is worth having a rational discussion with. For example, if they say, we should privatize roads or all taxation is theft, just get up and silently walk away. Whenever taxes come up, you're going to hear a lot of nonsense. Take note of it, analyze it critically, and make your own decisions. Here's my take. I'm happy to pay my taxes. I take advantage of every legal tax advantage I have, like using tax-advantaged accounts, but I know that my taxes contribute to an overall system of stability. I also know that I can always earn more, so I don't use taxes as the primary factor in my decisions. Finally, if you ever get the urge to complain about taxes, go take a ride on a road anywhere in the world. Notice the difference in infrastructure? So please, give me a break, pay your taxes, and be a contributing member of society. Taxes are a great example of where you can apply the 85% solution. Remember, with the 85% solution, make a few key decisions, get good enough to be mostly right, and then move on with your life. So the 85% solution when it comes to taxes is to take full advantage of your tax-deferred accounts. If you're doing this, you're saving thousands of dollars in taxes every year. Now, once you get deeper into personal finance, I can already tell you what's going to happen. You're going to stumble across lots of outlandish claims of ways that you can shield your money from taxes. Listen, 
I have a ton of expensive advisors. I've looked into all these options. Nearly all of them are BS. Yes, if you earn hundreds of thousands of dollars each year, you may have a few additional options. But the real rich people tax benefits begin when you're earning millions of dollars from your existing investments. So focus on growing your money and hitting that 85% solution when it comes to taxes. The one thing you need to know about taxes and investments. Invest as much as possible into tax-deferred accounts like your 401k and IRA. Because retirement accounts are tax-advantaged, you'll enjoy significant rewards. Your 401k money won't be taxed until you withdraw it many years down the line, and your Roth IRA earnings won't be taxed at all. More importantly, you won't have to worry about the minutiae, including picking tax-efficient funds or knowing when to sell to beat end-of-year distributions. By moving towards investing in tax-advantaged retirement accounts, you'll sidestep the vast majority of tax concerns. Investing in tax-advantaged retirement accounts is the 85% solution for taxes. Set it up, then move on. The Annual Financial Checklist It's important to maintain your automated financial system. Every year, I spend a few hours re-reviewing my system and making any changes necessary. For example, have I added subscriptions that I don't need anymore? Or should I adjust my conscious spending plan to account for new short-term goals? Set aside some time every year. I recommend December so you can start the year off right and go through each of these steps. First, evaluate your conscious spending plan. This should take about three hours. Use these as general guidelines, but take them seriously. If your money is following these suggested percentages, that's a big win towards a rich life. Fixed costs, 50 to 60%. Investments, 10%. Savings, 5 to 10%. Guilt-free spending, 20 to 35%. Reassess current subscriptions and cut them if necessary. Renegotiate your cable and internet bills. Revisit your spending goals. Are they accurate? Are you actively saving for them? If your fixed costs are too high, it may be time to look at a cheaper rent or Airbnb a room out or even earning more. And if you aren't investing at least 10%, it's worth finding the money from somewhere else, usually guilt-free spending, and then reallocating it towards investments. Next, negotiate any fees. This will take you about two hours. Many companies will offer you introductory rates or they'll lower your monthly fees if you just ask. Use my word-for-word -word scripts at IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com slash negotiate. Here are some of the places that you can negotiate. Cell phone bill, car insurance, cable and internet, and bank fees. Next, investment, which should take you a couple of hours. Confirm that you're contributing the max to your 401k and that your money is being invested, not just sent over and sitting there. Make sure it's also being invested in the right places. Confirm you're contributing the max to your Roth IRA and also that your money is being invested. Be sure you're taking advantage of all your tax-advantaged accounts. Next, debt. This should take a couple of hours. Revisit your debt payoff plan. Are you on track? Can you pay any of your debt off sooner? Check your credit report and credit score and renegotiate your credit card's APRs if possible. Next, credit cards. This should take about an hour. Make a plan to use your credit card points. Some of them might expire, some of them might not, but just remember, you earned them. 
Now have fun with them. Call to ask what other perks your credit card offers that you haven't taken advantage of. And confirm you're not paying any unnecessary fees. If you are, try to negotiate them down. Next up, earn more. You can negotiate a raise, which I cover in this book. You can also make money on the side. You can visit my site, IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com, for ideas, examples, and courses. Finally, here are some other areas that you can optimize once a year. You can review your insurance needs, including renter's insurance and life insurance. And if you have dependents, create a will. Why you should think twice about selling. I've never sold a single one of my investments. Why would I? I'm investing for the long term. But I still get questions about selling investments. In general, anytime you sell your investments, you'll be eligible to pay taxes when April 15th rolls around. The government has created incentives for long-term investing. For example, if you sell an investment that you've held for less than a year, you'll be subject to ordinary income tax, which is usually 25 to 35%. Most people who buy a stock and make $10,000 in nine months and stupidly decide to sell it really only pocket $7,500. If, however, you hold your investments for more than a year, you'll pay only a capital gains tax, which is much lower than your usual tax rate. For example, take the same person who sold their stock in nine months and paid 25% in ordinary income taxes. If they'd held that stock over a year, then sold it, they would have paid only 15% in capital gains taxes. In other words, instead of only netting $7,500, they would have ended up with $8,500. Now, imagine that happening with $100,000 or $500,000 or millions of dollars. If you save and invest enough by following the IWT system, those numbers will become extremely likely. This is a small example of big tax savings from holding your investments for the long term. Here's the trick. If you've invested within a tax-advantaged retirement account, you don't have to pay taxes in the year that you sell your investment. In a 401k, which is tax-deferred, you'll pay taxes much later, when you withdraw your money. In a Roth IRA, by contrast, you've already paid taxes on the money you contribute, so when you withdraw, you won't pay taxes at all. Since you presumably made a good investment, why not hold it for the long term? In Chapter 6, I covered how people can't time the market. In Chapter 3, I showed you how buy and hold investing produces dramatically higher returns than frequent trading. And once you've factored in taxes, the odds are stacked against you if you sell. This is yet another argument for not buying individual stocks and instead using target date funds or index funds to create a tax-efficient, simple portfolio. Remember, all of this assumes that you made a good investment. Bottom line, invest in retirement accounts and hold your investments for the long term. Knowing when to sell your investments. When you're young, there are only three reasons to sell an investment. You need the money for an emergency, you made a terrible investment and it's consistently underperforming the market, or you've achieved your specific goal for investing. You need the money for an emergency. If you suddenly need money for an emergency, here's your hierarchy of where to get it. Number one, use your savings account, which you established in chapter two. Number two, earn additional money. Drive for Uber, sell old clothes, pick up tutoring. You might not be able to earn a huge amount in a short time, 
but selling some of your own goods is an important psychological step. It will let you prove how serious you are both to yourself and to your family, which turns out to be really helpful if you end up asking them for help. Number three, ask your family if you can borrow money from them. I know, I know, this doesn't work if your family's crazy, but it is an option. Number four, use the money in your retirement accounts. You can always withdraw the principal you contributed to your Roth IRA penalty-free, although you will be severely retarding your money's ability to compound over time. With a 401k, you can take money out for hardship withdrawals, which typically include medical expenses, buying a home, tuition, preventing foreclosure, and funeral expenses, but you'll probably still pay early withdrawal fees. If it comes to this, consult your HR rep. But I really urge you to avoid cashing out your retirement accounts because of the penalties and taxes involved. Number five, use your credit card only as a last resort. I cannot emphasize this enough. The chances are very good that your credit card will gouge you as you're repaying it, so don't do this unless you're truly desperate. Financial options for super achievers. Make the 10-year plan that few others do. You know, I gotta tell you, I love getting emails from people who've optimized their personal finances and they wanna know what's next. My answer, just ask people five to 10 years older than you what they wish they'd started earlier, then do that. You'll get three answers right off the bat. Number one, create an emergency fund. An emergency fund is simply another savings goal that's a way to protect against job loss, disability, or simple bad luck. Especially if you have a mortgage or you need to provide for your family, an emergency fund is a critical piece of being financially secure. To create one, just set up an extra savings goal and then funnel money to it in the same way that you would your other savings goals. Eventually, your emergency fund should contain 6 to 12 months of spending money, which includes everything. Your mortgage, payments on other loans, food, transportation, taxes, gifts, and anything else you would conceivably spend on. Number two, insurance. As you get older and more crotchety, you're going to want more and more types of insurance to protect you from loss. This includes homeowner insurance, like fire, flood, and earthquake, and life insurance. Now, if you own a home, you do need insurance, but in general, young single people don't need life insurance. First of all, statistically, we hardly ever die, and the insurance payout is useful only for people who depend on your livelihood, like your spouse and kids. Beyond that, insurance is really outside the scope of this book, but if you're truly interested, I would encourage you to talk to your parents and their friends and search for life insurance online to research the various options. You likely don't need to buy a bunch of insurance options right now, but you can certainly set up a savings goal so that when you do need them, you'll have the money to use. One last thing, and this is important. Insurance is almost never a good investment, despite what financial salespeople or clueless parents will tell you. So use it as protection from downside risk, like for fires or accidental death if you have a family, but don't think of it as a growth investment. Third, children's education. Whether or not you have children yet, your first goal should be to excel financially for yourself. I gotta tell you, I'm always confused when I see people online who are in tons of debt, yet they wanna save for their children's education. What the hell? First, get out of debt and save for your own retirement. Then you can worry about the kids. That said, just as Roth IRAs are great retirement accounts, 
529s are great options for children's education. 529s, by the way, are educational savings plans with significant tax advantages. If you've got kids, or you know that one day you will, you can pour extra cash into a 529. If you're younger, these are just a few of the things you may be forced to think about in the next 10 years. The best way to prepare yourself is to talk to successful people who are somewhat older than you and they have their act together. Their advice can be invaluable and it can give you an edge on planning for the next decade. You made a terrible investment that's consistently underperforming. This point is largely moot if you invested in an index fund or series of index funds because they reflect the entire index's performance. To oversimplify it, if your total market index fund is going down, that means the entire market is down. If you believe the market will recover, that means investments are on sale for cheaper prices than before, meaning not only should you not sell, but you should keep investing and pick up shares at a cheaper price. But let's talk about this conceptually so we can understand when to sell an investment for poor performance. If you discovered that the share price of a stock you own is down by 35%, what would you do? Well, you might say, Ramit, this stock sucks. I need to sell it before I lose all my money. Not so fast. You have to look at the context before you decide what to do. For instance, if the example is a consumer goods stock, how's the rest of the consumer goods industry doing? By looking at the stock and the surrounding industry, you might see that the entire industry is in decline. It's not your particular investment. They're all doing poorly. Now, this raises questions about the industry, but it also gives you a context to explain your stock's plunging returns. And just because they're plunging doesn't mean that you should sell immediately. All industries experience declines at one time or another. Find out what's happening with the industry. Is it still viable? Are there competitors replacing it? For example, if you own shares in a company that's producing CD players, chances are, I don't think that business is coming back. If you think the industry or investment is simply going through a cyclical downturn, then hang on to the investment and continue regular purchases of shares. If, however, you think the industry won't recover, you may want to sell the investment. Now, if your stock's share price has plummeted, but the share prices of other companies in that industry are high, then consider selling. Once you decide it's time to sell an investment, the process is easy. You simply log into your investment account, browse to the investment you want to sell, and then just click the button, sell. If you're selling outside of a retirement account, there are many tax considerations, such as tax loss harvesting, which lets you offset capital gains with losses. But since most of us will start by investing all of our money in tax-efficient retirement accounts, I'm not going to get into those issues here. I want to emphasize again that I almost never have to sell investments because I rarely make specific stock investments. If you pick a target date fund or build a portfolio of index funds instead, you rarely have to think about selling. My advice? Save your sanity and focus on more important things. You achieved your specific goal. Buying and holding is a great strategy for ultra-long-term investments, but lots of people invest in the medium to short-term to make money for specific goals. For example, I'm going to invest for a dream vacation to Thailand. I don't need to take the trip anytime soon, so I'll just put 100 bucks a month into my investment account. Remember, if your goal is less than five years away, you should set up a savings goal in your savings account. But if you've invested money for a longer-term goal that you've achieved, sell it. Don't think twice. 
That's a great investing success, and you should use the money for whatever your original goal was. You're almost there. We've got one last chapter to go through. From the thousands of emails and thousands of blog comments I've gotten over the years, I've learned that there are a few common issues that lots of people have questions about. In the next chapter, I'll cover the juicy specifics of money and relationships, buying a car in your first house, and managing the daily questions that come up in your financial life. Last chapter. Let's do it.